Letter from Phylon to Ignatius Joseph Martinovitz, Professor of Physics at the University of Lemberg, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rodelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Letter from Phylon to Ignatius Joseph Martinovitz, Professor of Physics at the University of Lemberg, Part 2. Imagine to yourself this ballad, given in beautiful verses, in a sweet and simple language, which seems to have been made for the lips of youth, adapted to a melody which moves the heart and draws from it the purest tears, a seraphic voice which sings with an exquisite purity, an incomparable musical accent, and all this in the mouth of the son of Trismegatus, the pupil of the Zingara, are the most beautiful, the most candid and the best endowed of the children of earth. If you can represent to yourself as a frame a vast group of manly, ingenuous, and picturesque figures in the midst of one of Rysdale's landscapes and the torrent which was not seen, but which sent from the bottom of the ravine, as it were, a fresh melody mingled with the far-off tinkling bells of the goats on the mountain. You will conceive our emotion and the ineffable poetic delight in which we remained for a long time plunged. Now, my children, said Albert Potterbrad to the villagers, we have prayed, it is time to labor. Go to the fields. As for myself, I go with my family to seek life and inspiration through the forest. You will return this evening, cried all the peasants. The Zingara made a sign of affection, which they took for a promise. The two little girls, who understood nothing of the course of time or the chances of their journey, cried out, Yes, yes, with an infantile joy, and the peasants dispersed. Old Zdenko seated himself upon the threshold of the hut, when he had seen with a paternal air that his godson's bag was provided with the family breakfast. Then the Zingara made us a sign to follow, and we left the village in the suite of our wandering musicians. We had to ascend the slope of the ravine. The master and myself each took one of the little girls in our arms, and this gave us an opportunity to join Trismegistus, who, until then, had not seemed to notice our presence. You see me rather absent, said he to me. I am sorry to deceive the friends whom we leave, and that old man whom I love, and who will seek for us tomorrow in all the paths of the forest. But Consuelo has willed it so, added he, pointing to his wife. She thinks that there is danger for us in remaining longer here. I cannot imagine that we can henceforth occasion fear or envy to any one. Who would understand our happiness? But she assures me, that we draw the same danger upon the heads of our friends, and though I know not how, I yield to this consideration. Moreover, her will has always been my will, as mine has always been hers. We shall not return to the hamlet this evening. If you are our friends, as you appear to be, you will return at night, 
when you have walked far enough and will explain this to them. We did not bid them farewell because we did not wish to afflict them, but you will tell them that we shall return. As to Zdenko, you have only to say to him, Tomorrow. His foresight extends no further. Every day, the whole of life, is for him tomorrow. He has cast off the era of human notions. He has his eyes opened upon eternity, into the mystery of which he is ready to be absorbed, in order there to resume the youth of life. Sedango is a wise man, the wisest man I have ever known. The kind of insanity with which Trismegatus was affected produced upon his wife and children an effect worthy of remark. Far from blushing at it before us, far from suffering at it for themselves, they listened to each of his words with respect and seemed to find in his oracle strength to raise themselves above the present life and above themselves. I believe that noble youth who eagerly caught every thought of his father, would have been much astonished and highly indignant, had he been told that they were the thoughts of a madman. Trismegistus spoke rarely, and we noticed that neither his wife nor children urged him to it without an absolute necessity. They religiously respected the mystery of his reverie, and though the Zingara kept her eyes constantly fixed upon him, she seemed to fear for him rather the inconveniences than the ennui of the isolation in which he was placed. She had studied his eccentricity, and I use this word in order not again to employ that of insanity, which is still more repugnant to me when referring to such a man and to so respectable and so touching a state of mind. I have understood from seeing this Trismegistus, the veneration which the peasants, great theologians and great metaphysicians without knowing it, and the people of the East bear towards men deprived of what is called the light of reason. They know that when this abstraction of the understanding is not troubled by vain efforts and cruel mockeries, it may become an exceptional faculty of the most poetically divine character instead of turning into fury or brutishness. I do not know what would become a Trismegistus if his family did not interpose as a rampart of love and fidelity between the world and him. But should he, in that case, sink under his delirium, it would be an additional proof of the respect and care which is due to those diseased in his manner and to all the diseased of whatever nature. This family walked with an ease and an agility which would soon have exhausted our strength. The little ones themselves, if they had not been saved from fatigue, by being carried, would have devoured space. One would say that they felt born to walk, as the fish to swim. The Zingara does not wish her son to take the little girls in his arms, in spite of his good intentions. So long as he has not completed his growth, and his voice has not undergone the crisis which singers call the change. She raises upon her strong shoulders those supple and confiding creatures, and carries them as lightly as she does her guitar. Physical strength is one of the benefits of this nomadic life, 
which becomes a passion with the poor artist, as with the beggar or the naturalist. We were much fatigued when, through the roughest paths, we reached a wild and romantic spot called the Schreckenstein. We remarked, as we approached the spot, that Consuelo looked at her husband with more earnestness and walked nearer to him, as if she feared some danger or some terrible emotion. Still nothing disturbed the serenity of the artist. He seated himself upon a stone which tops a barren hill. There is something frightful in this place. The rocks are heaped up in disorder and continually break the trees by their fall. Those trees which have resisted have their roots above the soil and seem to hold by those knotty members to the rock which they threaten to drag away. A death-like silence reigns over this chaos. The herdsmen and woodcutters keep at a distance from it with terror, and the soil is dug up by wild boars. The sand bears the footmarks of the wolf and the chamois, as if the wild animals were sure of their finding a refuge against man. Albert dreamed a long while upon that stone. Then he directed his glance to his children, who played at his feet, and to his wife, who, standing before him, tried to read upon his brow. Suddenly he rose, knelt before her, and gathering his children by a gesture, prostrate yourselves before your mother, said he to them, with profound emotion, for she is the consolation sent from heaven to unfortunate men. She is the peace of the Lord promised to men of good will. The children knelt around the Zingara, and wept as they covered her with caresses. She wept also as she pressed them to her bosom, and compelling them to turn, made them render the same homage to their father. Spartacus and myself had prostrated ourselves with them. When the Zagara had spoken, the master yielded his homage to Trismegistus, and seized the moment to appeal to him with eloquence, to ask light of him, relating all that he had studied, all that he had meditated and suffered to receive it. For myself, I remained enchanted at the feet of the Zingara. I hardly dare tell you what passed in me. This woman might be my mother, without doubt. Well, I know not what charm still emanates from her. In spite of the respect I feel for her husband, in spite of the terror with which the sole idea of forgetting him would have transfixed me at that moment, I felt my whole soul rush towards her with an enthusiasm which neither the splendor of youth nor the fascinations of luxury have ever inspired in me. Oh, could I find a woman like this Zingara, that I might consecrate my days to her. But I do not hope it, and now that I shall never see her again. There is at the bottom of my heart a kind of despair, as if it had been revealed to me that there is no other woman for me to love upon the earth. The Zagara did not even see me. She listened to Spartacus. She was struck by his ardent and sincere language. Trismegistus also was penetrated by it. He clasped his hand, and making him take a seat beside him on the stone of the Schreckenstein, Young man, said he to him, you have awakened in me all the recollections of my life. I thought I heard myself speak at your age. 
when I ardently asked for the science of virtue from men ripened by years and experience. I had determined to say nothing to you. I mistrusted not your intelligence and your probity, but the simplicity and the fire of your heart. I did not feel myself capable, moreover, of retranscribing in a language which I formerly spoke the thoughts I have since been accustomed to manifest by the poetry of art, by feeling. Your faith has conquered. It has produced a miracle. I feel that I ought to speak to you. Yes, added he, after having examined him in silence during an instant which appeared to us an age, for we trembled lest this inspiration should desert him. Yes, I recognize you now. I remember you. I have seen you. I have loved you. I have labored with you in some phase of my anterior life. Your name was great among men, but I have not retained it. I remember only your look, your words, and that soul from which mine separated itself with difficulty. I read better in the future than in the past now, and future ages often appear to me as glittering with light as do the days which remain to me of life under this present form. Now, I tell you, you will be great also in this age, and you will do great things. You will be blamed, accused, calumniated, hated, disgraced, persecuted, exiled. But your idea will survive you under other forms, and you will have agitated present things with a formidable plan, with immense conceptions, which the world will not forget and which will perhaps give the last blows to social and religious despotism. Yes, you have reason to seek for action upon society. You obey your destiny. That is your inspiration. This enlightens me. What I have felt when listening to you, what you have communicated to me of your hope, is a great proof of the reality of your mission. Forward, then, act and labor, Heaven has made you the organizer of destruction. Destroy and dissolve. That is your work. Faith is needed to pull down as well as to build up. For myself, I voluntarily withdrew from the paths in which you rush forward. I considered them evil. Doubtless they were only accidentally so. If true servants of the cause feel called to attempt them again, it is because they have again become practicable. I thought there was nothing to be hoped for from actual society and that no one could reform it by remaining in it. I placed myself outside of it and, despairing to see salvation descend upon the people from the height of that corruption, I have consecrated the last years of my strength to act directly upon the people. I have addressed myself to the poor, to the weak, to the oppressed, and have brought to them my preaching under the forms of art and poetry, which they understand because they love them. It is possible that I have too much distrusted the good instincts which still palpitate in men of science and power. I no longer know them, since, repelled by their impious skepticism and their still more impious superstition. I withdrew from them with disgust to seek the simple in heart. It is probable that they must have changed, have been corrected and taught. 
What do I say? It is certain that this world has advanced, that it has purified itself, that it has become greater during 15 years. For everything human gravitates incessantly towards the light, and all is bound together, the good and the evil, to rush towards the divine ideal. You wish to address yourself to the world of the learned, the patricians and the rich. You wish to level by persuasion. You wish to seduce even kings, princes and prelates by the charms of truth. You feel gush up within you that confidence and that strength which surmount all obstacles and renew the youth of all that is old and worn out. Obey, obey the breath of the spirit. Continue and aggrandize our work. Gather our arms scattered on the field of battle where we were vanquished. Then began a conversation between Spartacus and the divine old man, a conversation which I shall never forget in my life. For a marvelous occurrence took place. This Rudolstadt, who was at first willing to speak with us only by the sounds of music, as formerly did Orpheus. This artist, who told us that he had long since abandoned logic and pure reason for pure feeling. This man, whom infamous judges called insane, and who consented to pass as such, making, as it were, a sublime effort from charity and divine love, suddenly became the most reasonable of philosophers, so far as to guide us in the path of the true method and of certainty. Spartacus, on his side, showed all the ardor of his soul. The one was the complete man, all whose faculties are in unison. The other was like a neophyte full of enthusiasm. I called to memory the gospel, in which it is said that Jesus conversed on the mountain with Moses and the prophets. Yes, said Spartacus, I feel that I have a mission. I have approached those who govern the earth and have been struck by their stupidity, their ignorance, and their hardness of heart. Oh, how beautiful is nature! How beautiful is life! How beautiful is humanity! But what do they do with nature, with life, with humanity? And I wept a long while on seeing both myself, and the men my brothers, and the whole divine work, the slaves of such wretches. And when I had groaned a long while like a weak woman, I said to myself, What prevents my tearing myself from their chains and living free? But after a phase of solitary stoicism, I saw that to be free alone is not to be free. Man cannot live alone. Man has man for his object. He cannot live without his necessary object. And I said to myself, I am still a slave. Let me deliver my brothers. And I have found noble hearts who have associated themselves with me, and my friends call me Spartacus. I had indeed told you that you would only destroy, replied the old man. Spartacus was a revolted slave, but no matter. Once again, organized to destroy. Let a secret society be formed at your call to destroy the existing form of the great iniquity. But if you wish to be strong, efficacious, powerful, introduce the most you can of living, eternal principles into that society destined to destroy. 
in order that it may at first destroy, for to destroy it must be, all life is positive, and that afterwards from the work of destruction may be born that which should be born. I understand you. You limit my mission very much. However small or great, I accept it. All that is in the designs of God is great. No one thing that should be the rule of your soul. Nothing is lost. Though your name and the form of your works disappear, though you labor without a name, like myself, your work will not be lost. The divine balance is mathematics itself, and in the crucible of the divine chemist, all the atoms are counted at their exact value. Since, then, you approve my designs, teach me, open to me the root. What must be done? How must I act upon men? Is it especially upon the imagination that I must operate? Must I profit by their weakness and their inclination for the marvelous? You have yourself seen that good can be done with the marvelous. Yes, but I have also seen all the evil that can be done. If you are well acquainted with the doctrine, you will know in what epoch of humanity we live, and you will conform your means of action to your time. Teach me, then, the doctrine. Teach me the method of acting. Show me certainty. You ask method and certainty from an artist, from a man whom men have accused of madness and persecuted under that pretext. It seems that you are in error. Ask of the philosophers, of the wise man. It is of you that I ask. I know the value of their science. Well, since you insist, I will tell you that the method is identical with the doctrine itself, because it is identical with the supreme truth revealed in the doctrine, and, on thinking of it, you will understand that it cannot be otherwise. All is therefore reduced to a knowledge of the doctrine. Spartacus reflected, and after a moment's silence said, I wish to hear from your mouth the sublime formula of the doctrine. You will hear it, not from my mouth, but from that of Pythagoras, himself the echo of all the sages. O divine tetrad, that is the formula. It is that which, under all kinds of images, of symbols and emblems, humanity has proclaimed by the voice of the great religions, when she has not been able to seize it in a purely spiritual manner, without incarnation, without idolatry, such as it has been given to the revealers to reveal it to themselves. Speak, speak, and to make yourself understood, recall to me some of those emblems. Afterwards you will use the austere language of the absolute. I cannot separate as you would wish, these two things, religion in itself, in its essence, and manifested religion. It belongs to human nature in our epoch to see both together. We judge the past, and, without living in it, we find in it the confirmation of our ideas. But I will make myself understood. Come, let us talk. Let us talk first about God. Does the formula apply to God? to the infinite essence? 
it would be faulty did it not apply to him from whom it flows. Have you reflected upon the nature of God? Without doubt, for I feel that you carry heaven, the true heaven in your heart. Well, what is God? He is being, he is absolute being. Sum ki sum, says the great book, the Bible. Yes, but do we know nothing more of his nature? Has not God revealed to humanity something more? The Christians say that God is three persons in one, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And what say the traditions of the ancient secret societies which you have consulted? They say the same thing. Has not this coincidence struck you? Public and triumphant religion, secret and proscribed religion, agree respecting the nature of God. I might speak to you of the worships anterior to Christianity. You would find the same truth hidden in their theology. India, Egypt, Greece have known the one God in three persons. But we will return to this point. What I wish to make you understand now is the formula in its whole extent, under all its aspects, in order to arrive at what interests you, the method, the organization, the polity. I continue, from God, let us pass to man. What is man? After a difficult question, you ask me another which is not less so. The oracle of Delphos declared that all wisdom consisted in the answer to this question. Man, know thyself. And the oracle was right. It is from the human nature well understood that issues all wisdom, as well as all morals, all organization, all true polity. Permit me, therefore, to repeat my question to you. What is man? Man is an emanation from God. Without doubt, as are all the creatures that live, since God alone is being, absolute being. But you do not resemble, I hope, the philosophers whom I have seen in England, in France, and also in Germany, at the court of Frederick. You do not resemble that Locke, of whom so much is said nowadays on the faith of his commentator Voltaire. You do not resemble Monsieur Helvetius, with whom I have often conversed, nor Lemaitre, whose bold materialism so much pleased the court of Berlin. You do not say, like them, that there is nothing peculiar in man to distinguish him from the animals, the trees, the stones. God, doubtless, makes all nature live as he makes man live. But there is order in his theodicy. There are distinctions in his thought and consequently in his works, which are his thought realized. Read the great book that is called Genesis, that book which the common people rightly look upon as sacred without understanding it. You will there see that it is by divine light establishing the distinction of beings that the eternal creation is made. Fiat lux et facta, est lux. You will there see also that each being having a name in the divine thought is a species. Creavit cuncta juxta, genus suum et secundum speciem suum. What then is the peculiar formula of man? 
I understand you. You wish to give me a formula of man analogous to that of God. The divine trinity must be found in all the works of God. Each work of God must reflect the divine nature, but in a special manner, each in a word according to its species. Certainly, I will tell you the formula of man. It will be a long while before the philosophers, now divided in their manner of seeing, will unite to comprehend it. Still there was one who comprehended it already many years since. He is greater than the others, although he is infinitely less celebrated among the vulgar. While the school of Descartes loses itself in pure reason, making man a machine of reasoning, of syllogisms, an instrument of logic, while Locke and his school lose themselves in sensation, making man a sensitive plant, while others, such as I could cite in Germany, are absorbed in sentiment, making man a selfishness for two, if referring to love, for three or four and even more, if referring to the family. He, the greatest of all, began to understand that man was all this in one, all this indivisibly. That philosopher was Leibniz. He understood great things. He did not share the absurd contempt which our ignorant age feels for antiquity and Christianity. He dared to say that there were pearls in the dunghill of the Middle Ages. Pearls? I think so indeed. Truth is eternal, and all the prophets have received it. I therefore say to you with him, and with an affirmation stronger than his, that man is a trinity like God, and that this trinity is called in human language sensation, sentiment, knowledge. And the unity of these three things makes the human tetrad, corresponding to the divine tetrad. Thence comes all history, thence comes all polity, and it is thence that you must draw, as from an always living spring. You pass abysses which my mind, less rapid than yours, cannot pass so quickly, replied Spartacus. How, from the psychological definition you have just given me, does there proceed a method, a rule of certainty? This is what I first ask of you. That method easily proceeds from it, returned Rudelstadt. Human nature being known, the question is to cultivate it according to its essence. If you understood that unrivaled book from which the gospel itself is derived, if you understood the genesis attributed to Moses and which, if it really comes from that prophet, was brought by him from the temples of Memphis, you would know that the human dissolution, or that which the genesis calls the deluge, has no other cause than the separation of these three faculties of human nature, departing thus from unity, and therefore from connection with the divine unity, in which intelligence, love, and activity remain eternally associated. You will then understand how every organizer must imitate Noah, the regenerator, and what the scripture calls the generations of Noah, with the order in which it places them and the harmony it establishes between them, will serve you as a guide. You would find also at the same time, in metaphysical truth, 
a method of certainty to cultivate worthily the human nature in each man, and a light to enlighten you, respecting the true organization of societies. But I tell you once again, I do not think the present time made for organizing. There is too much to destroy. It is especially as method that I recommend you to attach yourself to the doctrine. The time of dissolution approaches, or rather it has already come. Yes, the time has come in which the three faculties of human nature will anew be separated, and in which their separation will occasion death to the social, religious, and political body. What will happen? Sensation will produce its false prophets, and they will extol sensation. Sentiment will produce its false prophets, and they will extol sentiment. Knowledge will produce its false prophets, and they will extol intelligence. These last will be the proud who will resemble Satan. The second will be fanatics ready to fall into evil as well as to advance to good, without sure criterion and without rule. The others will be what Homer says, the companions of Ulysses became under the wand of Circe. Follow neither of these three routes, which, taken separately, lead to abysses, one to materialism, the second to mysticism, the third to atheism. There is but one sure road to truth. It is that which corresponds to complete nature, to human nature developed under all its aspects. Do not leave that road, and for that purpose... Meditate unceasingly upon the doctrine and its sublime formula. You teach me things which I before had a glimpse of, but tomorrow I shall no longer have you. Who will guide me in the theoretic knowledge of truth and thence in practice? You will have other sure guides. Above all, read the Genesis and endeavor to seize its meaning. Do not take it as a book of history as a monument of chronology. There is nothing so void of sense as this opinion, which, nevertheless, prevails everywhere with the learned as well as with scholars and in all Christian communions. Read the Gospel with reverence to the Genesis and understand it by means of the Genesis after having received it into your heart. Strange fact. The Gospel is, like the Genesis, adored and misunderstood. These are great things, but there are still others. Collect piously what remains to us of Pythagoras. Read also the writings presented under the name of the divine theosophist whose name I bore in the temple. Do not believe, my friends, that I would have of myself dared to assume that venerated name of Trismegistus, it was the invisibles who commanded me to bear it. Those writings of Hermes, nowadays disdained by the pedants, who foolishly believed them to be the invention of some Christian of the second or third century, contain the ancient Egyptian science. A day will come in which, explained and brought to light, they will appear what they are, monuments more precious than those of Plato. For Plato derived his science from them, and it must be added that he has strangely misconceived and falsified the truth in his Republic. Read, therefore, Trismegistus and Plato, 
and those who since their time have meditated upon the great mystery. Among this number, I recommend to you the noble monk Campanella, who suffered horrible tortures for having dreamed what you dream of, human organization based upon truth and science. We listened in silence. When I speak to you of books, continued Trismegistus, do not believe that, like the Catholics, I idolatrously incarnate life in the tombs. I will say to you of books what I said yesterday of other monuments of the past. Books, monuments, are the remains of life by which life may and should be nourished. But life is always present, and the eternal trinity is better engraved in us and on the face of the stars than in the books of Plato or Hermes. Without intending it, I somewhat by chance turned the conversation. Master, said I to him, you have just expressed yourself thus. The trinity is better engraved on the face of the stars. What do you mean by that? I see indeed, as the Bible says, the glory of God shine out in the brightness of the stars. But I do not see in those stars a proof of the general law of life, which you call trinity. The reason is, he replied, that physical sciences are still insufficiently advanced, or rather, that you have not studied them at the point where they now are. Have you heard of the discoveries in electricity? Doubtless, for they have drawn the attention of all educated men. Well, have you not remarked that the savants, who are so incredulous, so contemptuous, when reference is made to the divine trinity, have come, with regard to those phenomena, to recognize the trinity? But they themselves say that there is no electricity without heat and light, and reciprocally. In a word, they there see three in one, which they are not willing to admit in God. He then began to speak to us of nature, and of the necessity of referring all its phenomena to one general law. Life, said he, is one. There is but one act of life. The sole question is to understand how all particular beings live by the grace and intervention of the universal being, without, on that account, being absorbed in him. I should have been delighted on my own account to have heard him develop this great subject, but for some time past Spartacus had appeared to give less attention to his words. It was not that he did not take an interest in them, but the tension of the old man's mind would not last always, and he wished to improve it by bringing him back to his favorite subject. Rudolstadt perceived this kind of impatience. You no longer follow me, said he to him. Does the science of nature appear to you inapproachable in the manner in which I understand it? If you think so, you are mistaken. I place as much value as you do upon the present labors of savants, turned entirely to experiments. But by continuing in this direction, they will not form science. They will form only nomenclatures. I am not, moreover, the only one who believes this. I knew in France a philosopher whom I loved much, Diderot, who often cried out, respecting the heaping up of scientific materials without a general idea. This is, at most, the work of a stonecutter, 
but I see neither edifice nor architect. Know then that, sooner or later, the doctrine will have to do with the natural sciences. We must build with those stones. And then, do you believe that the natural philosophers can nowadays really understand nature? Despoiled by them of the living God who fills it? Can they feel it, know it? For example, they take light for matter, sound for matter, when it is light and sound. Ah, cried Spartacus, interrupting him, do not think that I repel your intuitions respecting nature. No, I feel that there can be no true science but by the knowledge of the divine unity and of the perfect similitude of all phenomena. But you open to us all the paths, and I tremble at the thought that you will soon be silent. I could wish that you would enable me to take some steps forward in one of those paths. Which? asked Rudolstadt. It is the future of humanity, I think of. I understand. You would wish me to give you my utopia, returned the old man, smiling. That is what I came to ask of you, said Spartacus, your utopia, the new society which you bear in your brain and in your bosom. We know that the society of the invisibles sought for and dreamed of its basis. All that labor has ripened in you. Let us profit by it. Give us your republic. We will attempt it, so far as it appears realizable to us, and the sparks from your altar will begin to move the world. Children, you ask of me my dreams, replied the philosopher. Well, I will try to raise a corner of the veil which so often conceals from me the future. It will perhaps be for the last time, but I ought to attempt it today, for I have faith that with you all will not be lost in the golden visions of poetry. End of Letter from Phylon to Ignatius Joseph Martinovitz, Professor of Physics at the University of Lemberg, Part 2.